You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Hi, I'm Deb Seminary, and I'm sitting here with my husband, Mike, the host of Mike Seminary and Friends. It's been a little over a year since he started these podcasts, and I kind of want to know, Mike, how's it going? It's been over a year? Oh, my Lord, it's gone so fast. I'm having so much fun, and thanks to you, I wouldn't be doing it. Well, I'm certainly glad that I came up with the idea. It has been keeping you busy and occupied and not bothering me too much. So. And I've paid you a boatload of money for all the work you're doing, haven't I? Oh, yeah. Yep. I okay, really so I cook meals. I appreciate that. Um, but let's talk about the guests. You've had some really cool guests. you talked to musicians. You've even had musicians play for you. Mm-hmm. Um, some authors. Uh, Entrepreneurs. People I've never met, I, one way or another, another stumble into them, and I've and I've learned a lot. I've never read so much in preparing, uh, preparing for who I'm going to interview, and it's been a gas. Research is important, isn't it? It is. Yep, and I'm really glad that you just don't use Wikipedia, and that's the only thing. I'm glad you really died. What's Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I read a lot. I mark up books. I buy too many books. Eh, maybe not too many. It's okay. You're retired. You don't have anything else to do. And so, who are you going to have on this week? I don't know. Let's listen and find out. Okay. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Gotcha. Today, I'm pleased to have as my guest a person, first of all, he's an incredibly handsome guy, wears his hair exactly the way a person should be wearing his hair. He is uniquely qualified to kick off a four-part series regarding manufacturing and its important role to local, regional, and the statewide economies, and frankly, healthy economic development. Jody Mion, welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Thank you for taking time to join me. It's great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Uh, thank you very much for having me, and how are you doing? If I was any better, it'd probably be illegal, and you'd be hearing sirens because the cops are coming to take me somewhere. I'm, <laughs> life is really good. I'm blessed, and thank you for asking. I appreciate that a lot. So this is going to be interesting. We, we met through social media. I I happened to notice the post. No, actually, you did. You made a comment about an interview that I had with Klaus Lemke, who is really, truly a gem of a human being, as is his wife. Oh, family are just great. And so we started communicating. I didn't know much about you, and we started visiting, and I learned what you do, and I had this idea... Uh, about how to include people like Howard Dahl and others to talk about manufacturing. And we just had this conversation, and here we are. We're going to kick off a four-part series, and I appreciate you very much, Jody, for being willing to take it, take this on and help us put you know some framework around it. Yeah, you're welcome, Mike. I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah. I'm excited. So we have some things in common, other than the proper hairstyle, by the way. We, we both have been mayors. <laughs> Uh, you, you, yes. we were both paper boys. Uh, you were uh, 
because of a comment you made your father once, you were a pig, sheep, chicken farmer, and we'll talk about all this. I eat pig and chicken. I've never <laughs> had sheep to my knowledge. So we have a lot in common. So my question, oh, by sure. the way, thank you for your service in the Army Reserve. You were also uh, deployed to Desert Storm. Thank you so much, Jody. So yeah, you're welcome. how does this guy with this unique background, I just listed some of it, paperboy, pig, sheep, chicken farmer, former mayor, Army Reserve, how do you become the president CEO of Impact Dakota? Uh, good question. Um, I thought about it a lot lately because this uh, position I just uh, came into here in mid-December, um, even though I've been with Impact Dakota since January of 2019. Um, but it really started out with I lived up in uh, Newburgh, Max Bass area, and I started working at a manufacturing facility in Dunseith, North Dakota. It was called Turtle Mountain Corporation. When I started there, they make uh, printed circuit assembly uh, for a lot of uh, OEM cu customers. And while I was there, I went to a Lean 101 training that North Dakota MEP was putting on in Minot. And from there, I fell in love with the process of identifying and eliminating waste from our processes. I saw the impact it could help us out with. I um, invited them back to our plant. We went there. We did a project, had a huge impact. So we actually uh, continued on for the next six months to nine months, implementing it throughout our entire facility and relaying out our facility. Um, from there, I went to um, eventually Jamestown I moved to, to work in uh, Goodrich, which is UTC Aerospace Systems, and now it's uh, Collins Aerospace. Um, and I was supplier quality there doing these same things, leaning manufacturing, Six Sigma, um, uh, and also out helping manufacturers throughout the United States and abroad because they were our suppliers. I, I helped with our suppliers. And as I was doing that, I had the opportunity to go back and get my master's degree at University of Jamestown in leadership. And one of our adjunct professors was the then CEO of Impact Dakota, Tony Richards. And so I had the opportunity to visit with him and learn more about what's happening at uh, Impact Dakota. And with 25 years of manufacturing experience, it just seemed like a natural fit to go out and help my friends and neighbors in North Dakota with uh, their manufacturing operations. Let's, thanks for that quick bio. Let's kind of peel some of this onion, by the way because I think it's going to be really important as we move forward, not just in our conversation, but then the three subsequent to this or following this. MEP. What was MEP? Yep. The Manufacturing Extension Partnership was established by the U.S. Department of Commerce to help um, grow and maintain manufacturing in the United States. And this was about 1996, 1997. Um, when they started a pilot program, and then they rolled it out so that all 50 states and Puerto Rico have got one MEP-designated organization that's part of this network. They're all their own independent organization um, in each of the 51 centers. Um, we happen to be North Dakotas. So that's how that was created by the U.S. Department of Commerce under uh, National Institute of Standards and Technologies, which is NIST. And when did it become... Impact Dakota. 
Yep. So, you know, we started out as Dakota, the Dakota MEP, and we were actually the North and South Dakota together. And then over time, South Dakota um, decided they wanted to form their own because that was the intent of the model all along. Um, when they split off and formed their own, then we became Impact Dakota or North Dakota MEP, and then we became Impact Dakota. And that would have been probably, um, I think it's, I, was, I don't remember the years exactly, but it was probably 10 years ago or seven years ago. Curious, and maybe because of your recent role, you might not know the answer to this question. So if by design this was supposed to be, while it's countrywide, each state has its own organization to work within its boundaries to do what it can to uh, help manufacturing particularly through technology, make improvements, be more productive, et cetera, et cetera. When it was a joint effort between the two Dakotas, were there times where there was some, you know, it, I want to make sure that I can pull this off the table for, for me and us in our state. Were there ever times that there was kind of a conflict when it was two states under one umbrella? No, there wasn't. It was really just essentially the, the nature of the network was just trying to figure out how do we get a center going in every state. So sometimes when you get into the small rural areas, it was harder to have enough resources and enough, um, you know, uh, an organization that would take it on in all states. So to start out with, it just kind of helped with having some collaborations with a couple of states. Uh, so the beauty of this network is it's not collaborative. I mean, it's not uh, competitive at all. It's totally collaborative. Um, you know, you, I think about when I was in industry and, you know, the uh, large OEMs, they would not share kind of their secret sauces or their processes or their tools. You know, a lot of what we pay for or that a lot of what we uh, implement and we do with our manufacturers are also being created by the other MEP centers that are also receiving partial funding through federal funds. That makes it so that we can share it. And we're not competing with each other because we, we don't support or help um, other folks in other states unless we're helping out the other center in that state. Um, so it's not a competitive thing at all. It's really a really co collaborative and hel helpful uh, organization. Thanks for that clarification. The other thing you mentioned in your, your brief opening uh, bio was uh, lean and uh, Six Sigma. By the way, yep. another thing we have in common, you're a black belt, so am I. You're a Six Sigma <laughs> black belt. Mine's in a completely yep. different field. So yep. help folks understand what that lean process was intended to do, how that worked, and then also what Six Sigma is and the importance of that and you having that particular designation or qualification. Sure. No, that's a great question. So um, I started out learning the principles of lean manufacturing. You can start out pretty basic stuff. I mean, it's, it's just everything from uh, being able to identify waste in your process. You, you map out the process steps and then you identify the ones that are value added, meaning they're things that the customer is paying for. And then you identify the items that the customers are not paying for. Those will include things like walking around looking for a pallet jack so I can move these parts from this place to this place. Or it's the time it takes to move the parts from this place to that place. Customers are not paying for that, but our company is having to pay the employees to do that. 
So what we do is we look at their most, um, you know, the biggest bang for the buck in the organization. We find the processes that are ongoing, a um, lot of parts coming through them. We identify how to get the waste identified and then remove that out of it. And you take the, all the time that you were spending doing non-value added activity, you compress down so it takes a, a lot less time to actually produce the parts that you're producing. And that puts money right back into the or the manufacturer's uh, you know, into their bottom line because it helps them be able to, um, you know, not be spending time looking for pallet jacks or power tools or, you know, um, waiting those types of things that are the waste. Yeah. Um, so that's lean, and then six sigma. The difference between this is that's making so a process now has not got the waste in it. Um, Six Sigma is reducing variation in a process. So if you can imagine, like I grew up and I hunted, right? So you're shooting at a target and I can shoot three shots and they can be tight together. That's a process that's in control, but they can be out of the bullseye. So I got to move the crosshairs over so that I can get so that they're coming into the center. So Six Sigma brings the process into the center is what it's trying to do. So that instead of having some things that are made the way you want them and some things that kind of fall out of the bullseye, um, this makes it so all your shots are hitting the bullseye mm. is what Six Sigma does. While you were describing what lean means, it, it, it allowed me to go back in time when... I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, and for I took a year off from high school. My hope was to become a rock and roll star. That didn't happen. In fact, we were making so little money for a while that I, I, I took a job at American Crystal Sugar in Moorhead, Minnesota. Sure. And so this is back in 1972. So I'm really dating myself. If people do the math, they can okay. figure out exactly how old I am. <laughs> and I remember when some of us would sit around at the the break room, which was really a little cafe, by the way. They had the greatest potatoes, gravy, <laughs> and turkey every single day, by the way. It was awesome mm. and great homemade pie. <laughs> of course, if it's a farmer's co-op, you better have great homemade pie, right? <laughs> yeah, you got to have that. <laughs> and monster cookies. Yep. And so we would find ourselves talking about what we would observe and say, boy, if I was running the place, I'd do this differently because I think it would be more efficient. Now, here are guys that you know, we don't know at, we don't know A from B, frankly. The co-op, of course, is owned and operated by the producing farmers. And of course, they have qualified management running the thing. But the reason I bring it up is we would observe things and say, if I were king of the world, here's how I'd do it. What I think I heard you say is that you would do the same thing in lean manufacturing, maybe even in Six Sigma, but you would map it out and you would time things. You would be very, very specific when you wanted to go and identify ways to provide efficiencies that the, the owner, the operator of the operation was incurring that you could never pass on to the consumer. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Yep, that's correct. Yep, that's exactly it. So then when when you're identifying and eliminating the waste, I mean, and to, to your point, Mike, it's exactly so when we go in and do an assessment at a manufacturer, it's kind of how it starts out. We actually honestly walk around, we look and observe, and we, we hear what our person who's given us a tour tells us. 
But we often are talking to everybody that's in the break room and that is working on the, the CNC mill or that's um, running the paint shop or, or, or um, quality inspecting parts. We ask them those questions because they've got a lot of great ideas on what they would do if they were going to run the organization. And quite honestly, when we come back out of this first assessment and we talk to the leadership team, they're like, how come my team doesn't tell me that we got this going on? I didn't know that this was going on. And it really starts out from having those conversations and, and hearing what 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 what's what do they think needs to be fixed? Because that's where it starts. So here's this guy that grew up on a farm and one day you say to your dad, how am I going to make money around here? And, and what was and what was his reply, by the way? Well, you can. Uh, he actually said, "Well, I'll tell you what." So I, I did the paper route for a couple of years in Max Bass, and I was nine, ten, eleven years old, and I would take a paper route with about twenty people. So I got about twenty dollars a month, which then was a lot because this would be nineteen seventy nine ish or whatever. And then uh, we had to move to the farm, so we picked up our house, moved to the family farm homestead um, to help take care of my grandparents. And I told my dad, I said, how am I supposed to be making money now? I mean, I've, I've had a good income for two or three years here. And now I'm on this farm. I can't deliver papers to these three neighbors. Um, he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, we'll go out and we'll get a pig. He goes, we'll buy pigs. He said, you'll have to buy your own pig. It's going to be $5. But he says, I'll give you all the food for free. You just got to feed my pigs too and water them. Um, so I, that's how I got into raising pigs that first year. And then I found out I actually made as much in a year raising that one pig. Um, of course, all the food is free because um, my dad gave me that. Um, but for all the work I did and from raising that one pig, I, I, at the end of the year, I had the same amount of money as my annual salary, <laughs> about $200 <laughs> for uh, doing the paper route. So that's how that started. And then it just proceeded from... Well, how about chickens next? And then I had 4-H, so I had sheep, and I started raising, uh, you know, getting them sh uh, shear the sheep and sell the wool, and that's how that all became a farmer, kind of. <laughs> well, I just love what you just said that, too. Parents can be <laughs> really great mentors. Yes. And sometimes they do it in a way where we don't immediately figure out what they're doing. It's kind of like the old TV show <laughs> series Kung Fu and, and the grasshopper. The grasshopper learning from the master. And in this case, you were the grasshopper. And your yep. dad said, here's a, this is going to work and see how you like it. <laughs> um, and the, and the, the feed was kind of free because he got free labor. <laughs> yes. You know, and it was really, honestly, it was the screenings off the grain, right? So we had a grain farm up there and he would just take the screenings. And so it was really just the scrap. And, we, uh, you know, we would be able to feed, the, feed that to the pigs. But so My question, Jody, is, in that time frame, that part of your life, yep. was manufacturing um, anywhere in your head? Were you thinking so, this could go somewhere? No, not really. I mean, the part that would, uh, I guess, would apply would be, I think, when ever you had to try and solve a problem with a piece of machinery. We had older machinery. We didn't have fancy machinery. Um, so what I, I feel like, you know, my dad and I always talk about how much time we spent visiting and working on machinery. Um, but, you know, those were important times that we got to share together, right? And then also learning how to solve problems. So 
my dad, you know, for, for me being a little kid, he was really good about letting me use my ideas and trying to figure out how we were going to fix this cultivator or fix this uh, loader. And uh, so from that standpoint, I mean, I was involved with uh, fixing things or putting things back together, but not really thinking at that time manufacturing. I mean, didn't really know much about that because I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I of course, use a lot of products, but I never really thought about where they're made and that they're actually made in our own neighborhood or, you know, across the state. You just said something that is so profound, and I've addressed it once, if not twice previously, the importance of farming <laughs> in the manufacturing footprint of our country. And there probably isn't a case where the farmer isn't really the epitome of the perfect entrepreneur, particularly when it comes to being creative and solving problems. And I've said it this way before. <clears throat> so many farmers and their families their operation is 25 miles from nowhere and nowhere is 25 miles from somewhere. So if something breaks down, particularly in a time-sensitive period, you rarely have the time to go from nowhere to somewhere to, or to have somebody come from somewhere to nowhere to fix it. And you likely didn't have the money on so many farms, so you figured out, by golly, how to do it on your own. And eventually some of those farmers became the founders of some of the most significant implement farm equipment manufacturing companies in the world. And, and some of them are right here in North Dakota. They absolutely are. Or not even on farm equipment, They're, they became manufacturers and, and the other things that are that are being manufactured here and the food producing. I mean, that's our biggest manufacturing is food producers. We're making pastas, we're making snacks, we're making uh, flavored pretzels, we're making flavored popcorn, we're making, um, we're making uh, you know, some really great sausages, we're making some really great uh, cuts of bacon, we're making um, chickpeas, we're making, uh, I mean, we're making all kinds of stuff in North Dakota. And I mean, we call that value. I'm sorry, go ahead. And we're the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's value added agriculture. But that's, um, you know, when I was a kid, Mike, we used to, we farmed, but that stuff would get put in the our truck down to the elevator onto a rail car hauled to Duluth or something. But now, I mean, I, this stuff is being brought to the right to the spot where we're processing it. And that's actually manufacturing. So they're producing and doing value-added agriculture. So when it leaves here, it's actually in a box that's going to get put on the store shelf or put in a cooler. And that's what's incredible is to see the impact of that on our state. And it's not just for North Dakota's shelves. This is going throughout the entire nation, these products, or the world. Is it safe to say that this concept of value-added, value-added agriculture which are critically important to our state and other states as well. That really was a concept that was birthed right on a family farm, more than likely. Not necessarily in by the farmers. Yeah, by farmers. You look at you know you look at a lot of these started out as cooperatives. It was three, four, five, eight 
farmers who said, let's make a pasta co-op. Let's make a bison co-op. Let's make a, you know, I mean, that's how this stuff was created. Or a farmer who was tired of sending their stuff down the line and they decided, I'm going to figure out how to do this myself. And they created a processing plant in Devil's Lake or they created one in Hillsboro. I mean, that's exactly what happened. In your role as president and CEO of Impact Dakota, you, you spend most of your time coordinating the interface of technology and growth strategies with the needs of small manufacturers, right? Yep. So, so kind of describe your activities on a daily basis and, and beyond. Yep. So right now, you know, I mean, for the most part, I'm probably spending um, as much of my time. I mean, I, of course, just before I came into the role of CEO president, before that, I was a senior business advisor. And what I spent most of my time doing then was actually out in the shop with manufacturers, helping them identify their pinch points, their pain, and identifying solutions that they could either implement themselves if they had the time and resources to do it. Um, in some cases, they were so busy or they wanted to get something fixed quicker um, that I would actually, uh, we would lead a project on their facility to help them get through this and get them back on to doing, spending their time doing, um, making the products that they make. So, you know, my, that was my normal days then. And right now it's probably 50-50 between, we, we do a lot of partnerships, Mike, with, um, you know, we're partners with North Dakota Department of Commerce. We all have the same goals here in North Dakota, um, to make North Dakota, uh, you know, a wonderful state to be a, to live in and be a part of. Um, so North Dakota Department of Commerce, we work closely with them, um, the manufacturing wing of that and the ag, value added ag section of that as well, as well as energy, um, manufacturers in all of these areas. Um, to help grow um, and maintain and grow the manufacturing in North Dakota, um, as well as there's SBDCs, small business developments. There's PTACs for procurement technical assistance centers. We partner with a lot of organizations that we are helping um, connect the manufacturers with who they need to be connected with because they're not aware sometimes um, of these uh, assistance and help that's out there for them to get through what's causing their Stuff to not get out of the factory as fast as they wanted it to, or to be costing them bottom line dollars. So, I use that uh, term or phrase "small manufacturers" because that's what you provided in your bio. And so, help me and listeners understand what's the difference between a small manufacturer and yeah. a, and a large, and do you do much? with the larger manufacturers. What's the difference? Well, in, in North Dakota, I mean, the definition of a small manufacturer at the Manufacturing Extension Partnership is 500 employees and less. So to us, that's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. It includes a lot of manufacturers. Um, you know, when you're part of an organization that has 219,000 people, you can understand the difference between them and the resources they've got to do a lot of these things and the manufacturers who are 500 employees and less and they're really great at what they do but they don't have some of those resources about regulatory compliance or about um, how to how to make a process flow um, better than it used to because they've got machines over inert growth a lot of times people would just add a building um, or add machines and they just put them in the open spot they had on their lot or in their building and all of a sudden now they're spending all this time moving stuff around the facility you know, I, I, we, we help folks out who have 10 
20 hours of um, overtime for all employees. And by going through and identifying and eliminating this waste, they've been able to actually bring it down to where they're actually going 40 hour shifts again um, because they're not wasting the time on. And, and it just happens natural. But when you're when you're in the middle of it, it's like something in our houses, right? Um you, you finally paint that banister and you're like, why didn't I just do that a long time ago, right? Because you don't notice it. You walk by it every day. You don't really see the impact it has. But outside set of eyes from our team, you know, all of our staff, our team is wonderful. They're, they're professional manufacturing folks who've been in the industry for their career. Um, so the, when they come in, they're able to kind of identify some of that pinch point, talk to the employees who are saying, man, if I could do this, fix this, and this, this is what I would do. Um, and we help them identifying and stop, you know, get, eliminate the pinch points and the pain and get back to doing, making the products and getting them out the door. You just made me think of something that I experienced. It must be 18, 19, 20 years ago. I was visiting a friend and colleague. I think he lived in Franklin, Tennessee at the time. And he worked at the Saturn. Uh, automobile manufacturing facility, which was an amazing, amazing facility. And if you recall, what, what GM did, it took some of the best of the best from their various uh, other companies and created Saturn. And for a while, Saturn was just like the hottest selling car on the planet. You barely even had them on the, on the showroom floors. It's kind of like Honda was back in the uh, mid and late 70s, early 80s. Anyway, I'm there visiting with Sandy. That's his name, Sandy. And he goes into his office for about a three-hour phone call. If I recall, Sandy wasn't a union guy. But everyone that he supervised in these pods were union members. And the call was this. And what you said about... 10 hours overtime and plus was this for the longest time saturn had their uh shifts and the workers working like 50 55 hours a week because they just couldn't keep up with production in the beginning were it not for that well all of a sudden demand for saturn really started tapering off <clears throat> excuse me and they so they were saying look We've, for, for this to continue to work well for all of us, we've got to go to 40-hour work weeks. Well, they wanted to strike because all of a sudden th that was going to create a problem for them. And what Sandy described to me was that, Mike, I, I wish we would have been educating people on, look, you might be making this amount of money because we've got this good thing going, but live on 40 because that's right. the kind of the standard, right? I don't know how all that ended up, but... In a way, you just described the importance of when you have people on overtime. That can be great, but you've got to be make sure that you're being really, really efficient because eventually, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, you might not be working 10 to 15 hours extra in overtime. Right. No, and I've been in environments where that was the case. I've actually, you know, and and it, it is sensitive because they come to depend on it if they've had it for a significant amount of time. Yeah. Um, you know, to your, to makes me think of when you talked about this, I think of, you know, Stephen Covey had this, you know, the whole sharpen the saw thing, right? I'm trying to saw wood. And then 
um, someone saying, hey, sharpen the saw. He's like, man, I'm just taking a long time to cut this piece of wood. And, you know, he's like, no, like sharpen the saw. And he's like, no, you're not going to keep going. You know, I got to get this wood cut. Um, spends all day cutting a few logs and he goes back and he cut, you know, sharpens the saw finally and comes back and he's able to do so much more. It's exactly the same thing when we're talking to folks. I mean, they're really trying hard to get their orders out the door for their customers. I mean, everybody and you know, has got this work ethic that, you know, you know, regardless of, I mean, who they are, where they're at, um, they're wanting to get their stuff out, but, if you can take a few minutes to sharpen the saw, I say, look at your manufacturing process. We can we can make it so that you actually are getting the stuff out without having to work so hard on yeah. the wood. You know, I mean, yeah, this might not be a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because that's my job as the host of my sure. channel. Uh-huh. Jody, the you said that one of your responsibilities is working with the interfaces of new technologies or or technology. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're in this period and have been for about five, six, seven years, and it's going to continue for some time to come, mm. where what we used to call emerging or disruptive technologies have this great impact on all things life. But in manufacturing, over the last five years, in your opinion, what's the most significant technology that has been introduced that has been, you've almost been forced to deal with it to continue to grow and be relevant? Um, a couple of things come to mind. ERP systems, which are you know, used to manage data in a manufacturing facility, you know, we used to just kind of schedule work and build things off of sheets of paper and clipboards. Um, we're using ERP systems for planning so that stuff is more streamlined and everything's connected. So this is managing data um, from the time when you're quoting a part to um, when you're going to kit it to put it in the floor to get it built and inspect it and complete the quality paperwork and send it out. Um, that's one. Number two would be um, the automation equipment. So we have to find ways to automate some of our processes because we just don't have um, the workforce available for all the jobs that there are, you know, um, so it doesn't replace people. It helps so that the people who are going to work there are still able to have these jobs because we are able to um, utilize some automation equipment to take out a task that was nobody wanted to do it. It's redundant. It's something that can um, it can help create uh, an opportunity so that you've now got somebody instead of um, grinding parts or um, cutting parts, they're programming and running a mill or a saw that's actually going to be making these parts. Um, so automated equipment. And then the other part of this is technology is there's sensors on everything. So the, the ability to collect data to, to tell, um, use process control. This is part of Six Sigma where you're going to use your variation control. You're going to try and understand. So is your process hitting the bullseye or not? And you're using this data collection. So there's data collection that's, you know, I mean, I can't think of a device today. I mean, my kids' toothbrush is Bluetooth, my my fridge is Bluetooth, my stove, my dryer and washer. So everything's connected to be able to collect data. It's the same thing in a manufacturing facility. And the, by collecting that data, they can tell if a process is moving out of the bullseye, and it helps them bring it back onto the bullseye immediately. 
And you you know this data this data is coming from sensors that are in the new equipment that's being sold. But you can take a Bridgeport lathe that's from World War II. You can put a sensor on it, and that data will still go up to your system to dial that process in and keep it in control. So those are the types of things that are being implemented in manufacturing today that are a game changer um, for being able to have their processes running more smoothly because they've got a much better pulse on it. They've got some automated equipment. You can have, you used to have one person maybe running a CNC mill. Now you can have one person who's running four or five CNC mills and they're low, they're just got auto part feeders. They're making sure that stuff's all going, that the machines aren't down. They do auto uh, tooling changes. Um, so this, I mean, this is kind of the game. This is what we call the industrial revolution, revolution 4.0. And that's where data storage is so cheap right now that you can collect a lot of data and it doesn't cost a lot in order to build the store and analyze it and use it. And again, this is all not rocket science. It's programs that are just telling you, is it hitting the bullseye or not? And when it's not, we make an adjustment. Maybe a dumb question, but before I ask it, I want to address something that you just said with regards to uh, data and the gathering of it. It's become so sophisticated, the collection of data, how it's collected. When my wife and I were just in Florida for January and February, and we were at a restaurant with another couple talking about a variety of things. And one of them happened to mention, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the, the restaurant, Jimmy Peas, Jimmy Peas. And he was talking about the incredible steaks that they have. About an hour later, when I was checking my iPhone for messages, and then I went to Facebook to see if there's a message there. As God is my witness, there was a Jimmy Peas ad on my Facebook. And I thought, that is creepy. Because it, I mean, one of the ways to collect data is to monitor just about everything, right? And I'm not saying Absolutely. that's what manufacturers are doing, but that's what's happened in our culture and society because we have the ability to collect data from so many sources that it can it can make significant improvements it could also be kind of creepy because it does happen right you know <laughs> well it's exactly i mean I, I go swimming at the track in jamestown every morning but if i'm going to do it on the weekends i like my phone put up google put the track in i can see if it's more or less than usual number of people in there and i'm like i'm probably not going to go up there right now because it's busy <laughs> and i'll watch for it to be below and i'm like oh now there's more openings there's going to be time for me to go up there and swim but you're exactly right i mean it's 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 incredible, the power of it. And there's a lot of good done with it. Oh, absolutely. And if something is done with it that isn't good, it's because that person wasn't necessarily good people. I, I give the majority of people the benefit of the doubt. I think people are good, right? Back to yep. data and collection. Recently in North Dakota, we had this wonderful big announcement about the data mining center. We used to call them data centers, but now because of cryptocurrency, we are centers that are 
mining for cryptocurrency. Yeah. In that setting, is there any benefit to the people that you're ser you're serving through um, Impact Dakota that they have a benefit from that particular announcement once it's completed? Um. So those are actually just their own facilities um, creating their own mining and doing their own thing. So that doesn't necessarily have that that I can think of a benefit to um, the manufacturers specifically. Um, when you talk about communities and you talk about, um, you know, creating 10 jobs or 15 jobs or 50 jobs in a community, um, that's valuable to a community because that's, Again, we go back to manufacturing or these types of situations where that's money that's coming from out of state or out of country because of whoever is paying for that product. And then it gets injected into our economy, our, our community. And then the employees are going and eating at the restaurants, buying groceries at the store and, you know, buying cars or going to school or the things in our community. So then that money circulates in our communities. So. That, I guess I would say, would be the value in, in any community with those types of organizations, but not necessarily directly to manufacturing. Thank you. And you just gave me an opportunity to keep beating a drum. I beat to drive some people crazy, but I'm proud to keep beating this drum. Stop buying stuff online. If you, <laughs> the, if, if you do that too often and too many people do the same thing you're doing, the very thing that Jody just described can come to a screeching halt because, yeah, you save money going on Amazon, going on whatever website and buying stuff. And, yeah, we now have the technology to take some of that the tax that's paid and put it back into the state coffers. But what we don't have in the short term are those jobs that Jody just described when we buy too many things online and some of those mom and pop shops have to shutter their, their doors because we're not supporting them. Okay, done, done preaching for, the, for, the, for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked you five years going backwards. Now let's look five years going ahead based on the speed of which change is coming to all of us for better or good. You know, whether it's the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, 5G, automation and robotics, blockchain, augmented reality, virtual reality, all of those, you know, you know, 3D printing, whatever. Five years going forward for the people that you work with and represent and then those collaborative partnerships, which one of those do you think? might have the greatest impact. And in this case, always what's the most, it's, it's a positive yep. impact. Which one do you think might yep. be? So, yep. so let me give you a good example. I mean, I think about, you know, I just was visiting with um, James Lamont, uh, Commissioner of Department of Commerce. He was talking to our board of directors and he talked about how, you know, farming a, a year, you know, uh, you know, years ago, there'd be a hundred people that took to run this size farm the size of this farm, this much land. And then today it takes two people to farm that much land. And you look at energy and what used to take a hundred people to do today, you can do it with 80 people. 
So I look at a manufacturing facility that makes, and this isn't necessarily in North Dakota, but there's examples in North Dakota too, but I'm thinking of one off the top of my head because I just saw the other MEPs. There's a cotton mill in one of the Carolina states that used to run making cotton. Uh, take it from the fields, value-added agriculture, actually make the cotton fabric and be able to make products with it. Um, it left to go overseas. Well, they reshore, they're trying to reshore this stuff. And that factory used to have 4,000 employees in it. Today, they refired it back up and it's got 400 employees. And so, yes, there's you know less jobs there, but that's something that we wouldn't have been able to even have here to be competitive if we didn't do something simple like being able to go from having what it took 100 people to do, now it takes 80 people to do. Or what it took 100 people to do, it takes 50 people to do. That's the game changer right now. And, you know, sometimes people look at automation or those types of things as a threat um, to uh, manufacturing because it costs jobs. You know, we've got, I remember in 2016, Mike, um, the day, or 2018, I remember this, 2016, the data was that there was 1 million person gap between the jobs available to work and the number of people available to work it. And that this is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it said 10 years from then, in 2026, that was going to grow by 11 million people to 12 million people. That's it, That means there's not even 12 million people that can actually work in the jobs that are going to be, as jobs are created. There's going to be a gap, so they won't even have those people. So, there is a necessity. This is this is pre-pandemic talking too. So then, when we had in 2020, when 20 million people, this is all U.S. statistics. When 20 million people were had to were laid off or let go of their jobs because the businesses closed, this threw a curveball in that formula of the 12 million because now you've got people who are reevaluating life, and you know you've talked to some of them on your podcast that are doing something completely different now because. They found they had to for to survive, and now they found something that is more rewarding to them, and they're enjoying doing more. the 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 game changer here is is, is identifying how do we do something that took four thousand people to do takes four hundred, or something that took. That's that's the game changer when you talk about this technologies, the the availability of the cost of storing data, the availability of technologies that can help um, our manufacturers be able to do the great stuff they do. Um, and be able to stay in our neighborhoods. They can be in all of our towns doing this stuff. You don't have to, uh, I mean, we've got great data, uh, great um, uh, infrastructure for uh, being able to utilize uh, transfer of data. Um, North Dakota has been wonderful about helping support that. And I mean, that's what makes this possible. I mean, we're one of the, I mean, we're, I think, I don't remember if we're number one or two in the nation, but I remember the whole, just during uh, Governor Burgum's State of the State address, he just talked about how um, how good we're doing, and we're just going to close that gap the rest of the way. During you know, and this next uh, is the next target. But that's the kind of the I would say like the the game changer for the manufacturers uh, five years out is is the automation, data storage, and being able to go from you, you we don't have the people to do it, so you can either automate. Or you can um, bring workers in, like my great-grandpa did when he came here from Norway and he was looking for a better opportunity. Um, we're fortunate enough to have people who still live somewhere where they would like to be able to bring their families to North Dakota or to the United States and have their kids get a better education, have some better opportunities for them. And um, we're welcoming them, welcoming them in because they're able to come in and 
um, be our engineers and be our doctors and be our um, CNC mill operators, be our truck drivers. Um, so that's how you got to close the gap is those types of things. And then the other thing you can do is identify and eliminate waste, you know, because again, we can't be spending time doing non-value added activity, non-value added activity like going around looking for tools or pallet jacks or moving parts all over the facility. So those are the types of things that are the five-year out thing. I'm glad you just addressed it that way, Jody, because I'm well aware. As you know, I'm I know James Lamont well. In fact, I'm on that board, Economic Development Foundation sure. board. Yep. Have been now for eight years. So I'm very familiar with the challenges in, in this space that we're talking about. Intimately aware and know of state manufacturing CEOs and leaders that make the painful decision to expand outside of the borders because of what you just said. There's Sometimes the available talent just isn't here, so you have to take some of your operation, if, you, if, if your plan is to grow, of course, some of your operation locate otherwise because there's more readily available the talent that you're looking for. So to your point of being able to react to that by uh, automating and integrating, <clears throat> excuse me, the technology in your operation, where you might not need the numbers of heads to get the thing done, you can use automation and the talent that you have. So thanks for, for mentioning that. Let me ask you a big, big picture question. But before I do that, I'm assuming that the makeup of your board People with attention deficit have a tendency to do it. I just did, by the way. So if I forget to go back to what I was going to say, it's your job to remind me. Okay. The person that educated me on how to say M-J-O-E-N, because I thought the J was silent, and he just brought up Norway, yeah. and he said, no, it's like Fjord, it's Mjoln. Yeah. So I'm assuming your board, because of the diverse nature of manufacturing in, in the state, whether it's natural resources, Ag, value-added, I could go on and on and on. You have representatives from across the board that have experience in those silos, we'll call them, to help you and the, your staff do the best job possible. Is that a fair statement? 100%, 100% right. We got um, our representatives on our board are a diverse group of very um, aggressive uh, entrepreneurial minds that um, come from small manufacturing, medium, and I say small meaning not less than 500, but I'm saying, um, you know, smaller manufacturers, 50 employees um, to large ones, and across value-added um, agriculture, food production, and um, all kinds of durable goods. Um, so, yes, it's very diverse, and it's located throughout the state, so all the regions of the state the board is from. We have a great board. Is Paul the one with the greatest sense of humor? <laughs> Paul, um, yeah, he does have a good sense of humor. <laughs> I love the guy. So I do too. So back to what I was going to say. Big, big picture question. If you were asked the question, what's the one thing, what's the one thing everyone in North Dakota should know about Impact Dakota, what would that be? Um... I think it would be that um, when 
A lot of folks who are running our organizations, they grew up just having to solve problems themselves. So by their own, I suppose, processes through the way they grew up, they're just going to try and figure it out, which is great. I mean, that's what, that's what it takes a lot of times. Um, with the way, the speed of the things moving today, um, sometimes you need a fresh set of outside eyes to come in and be able to help um, give that perspective, uh, be aware of some of the emerging technologies, some of the emerging solutions that are available. Um, so I, I guess I would say as a leader, sometimes it's important to know when to say, maybe I should uh, invite you in and come take a look and help me just give me some ideas on how I could improve my operation. Um, Nothing wrong with that. We, we kind of get blinders on to the normal day to day, but, uh, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of creativity and great solutions and technologies being implemented. I mean, they are. Um, but sometimes it's that outside set of eyes, um, who's been in a hundred or 200 different manufacturing facilities who has some ideas on this thing that's really tripping you up. There's a number of ways you could solve it. Which one do you like and works best for you? You know, that kind of perspective you don't get necessarily with uh, just doing it yourself or figuring it out. I mean, you'll find great solutions, but sometimes they can be quicker and sometimes they can be a better solution by, you know, collaborative minds coming up with some really great things. So I would say that would be the part of it is uh, don't hesitate to reach out and give us a call. Um, you know, when we come in to do a visit, um, we're here to support and serve you. You know, we get some support from the U.S. Department of Commerce. We get some support from, and this is financial support from the North Dakota Department of Commerce. And every client we do stuff with, when we're doing engagements, they pay a fee too to help with, they have some skin in the game too. But when we're going out and doing these assessments, um, we do those at no cost because what they're looking for is just trying to find out how do I solve this problem? I've been trying to think on this or, or, Things just don't flow smooth anymore, and I would like some help. Um, I would say that would be the biggest thing is give us a call. We'll come in. Um, we'll help identify the pinch points, the pain, and provide some options for you. And, again, it can you guys can take them and implement them yourselves, and a lot of times they do because um, they're very creative. Uh, you know, the teams that are working in our manufacturing facilities, they're trained problem solvers. Um, so – that or if they want help with it, then we can help them with it. What's the best way for people to communicate with you? Well, the best way, I mean, for ease of ease of doing, you know, for people listening, I'd say go to impactdakota.com. And so that's impactdakota.com. Um, and there you'll be able to actually see a lot of things like what do we do? All of our team is there, our contact information. Um, and then also our success stories. So if you're wondering what are other manufacturers doing, we have a whole section that's success stories. And you'll be able to find things that are in your own industry and see some of the solutions and things that have been implemented um, that either could help you or that gives you an idea of maybe I should give uh, Jody a call or give Impact Dakota team a call and see if they can come in and talk and talk to us and help us. I'm old enough to remember when communities were pursuing manufacturing in their footprint growth for economic development, it was typically the old smokestack version or picture of what manufacturing was. Nowadays, a lot of that 
isn't necessarily smokestack. But frankly, there's still a very important role for big manufacturing concerns that have smokestacks. And smokestacks today impact the environment far differently than the smokestacks of 40, 50 years ago. Here's where I'm going with this. There is a, an effort to really shut down the petroleum industry, the natural resources industry. And everyone understands the importance of being a clean contributor to our environment, right? Of, you know, all of the above with regards to how we uh, get from point A to point B and how, how we heat our homes and how we produce things. But here's something that's really important to know. The ramp off the highway of petroleum usage is a real long one. Here's one example alone. The majority of fertilizer used globally, globally, is petroleum-based. Petroleum and there are a lot of reasons for that. The alternatives aren't avail readily available, and they're a lot more expensive, by the way. Right. And for some of those operations, having smokestacks is important. Do you see a better way for us to help educate people on, yes, your concerns are very valid, but here's why this type of development, economic development, and this type of manufacturing industrial complex is still important? Um. So it's interesting you say that because I'm trying to think of a place that actually has a smokestack that's a factory, a manufacturing facility, and I can't really think of very many of them. There are a few um, smokestacks I'm aware of in the state, um, but they're very few. So when you look at most uh, manufacturing facilities, Mike, that are in our neighborhoods, um, whether they employ 500 people, 1,000 people, or 50 people, they look a lot like um, a store. I mean, it's a metal building or a brick building, um, and it does not have this type of necessarily impact on the community that a smokestack would. Um, you know, and all of these manufacturers are um, subject to and complying with all environmental requirements that are in the states. Because if you've got a facility and you're paint shopping or you're doing metal uh, shavings or you're doing all of that stuff has got processes and control to help make sure that we are not being, you know, damaging our own communities. Um, a lot of that stuff is looking to try and recycle. I mean, but I mean, just the natural progression of, of our culture. But um, to, I don't know how to, I mean, to answer, if I'm not answering your question correctly, but I, I you know, to me, it's, you would think that you're at, um, uh, you know, like a par, an auto parts store at most of the factories that I go to. Um, it's a, a you know, shop and they're making whatever they're making. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. They're making drones. They're making, uh, you know, flavored popcorn. They're making uh, whatever. I mean, it's just metal fabrication. They're doing plastic injection mold. They're doing um, castings. They're doing all kinds of cool stuff in North Dakota, making cool products that are sold on our shelves. They're making snow shovels. They're making... Uh, the stuff we use every day, Mike. 
Perfect and it's answer. sold throughout the United States. Yeah. Perfect answer, Jody. Well, by golly, I've enjoyed our conversation just immensely. I'm so thankful that you made a comment about my nice conversation with Klaus Lemke. <laughs> who, by the way, I did too. Because we both worked at a sugar beet factory in Hold Beach, and that was something that Klaus and I have in common. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I commented on it is because I went to school with his daughter at Minot State University, so I had this connection, and I had met Klaus and, and um, Marsha, and of course the whole family. Um, through that. So I, I really enjoyed that conversation. And it was crazy because I've known the Lemkes for a while, not really good, but I didn't know that. So I was like, what a great story. And I actually, that's how I reached out. I was like, what a great way to learn about our friends and neighbors. Have you had an opportunity to read the book yet? I bought it. I got it from Moni. <laughs> I called her uh, and she's like, I'll bring it over. So she brought it over to the office and I've got it. I haven't read it yet, but I got it. Oh, you're going to love it. And it, and it. I am going to love it. I know I am. It's, and when you read it, you're going to say it's like Klaus standing in front of me talking to me. It's just, <laughs> he wrote it the way he talks, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I can't wait. I've got about three books in front of it, but I've just got this, you know, the way I am, I'm just trying to get to it, but I can't wait to read it because, yeah, it's incredible stories. Jody, thanks so much for what you're doing with your staff and your board at Impact Dakota. And, of course, if you want to reach out or learn more, impactdakota.com. What's the last thing we should know about you and your wonderful group of folks over there, Jody? You know, I guess I, I just wanted to reiterate, um, I've never, I don't know, that's probably not true. I've been a part of some pretty cool things, but this team I'm a part of, um, they all just want to be helpful. Um, I've got an incredible team, my staff, um, our partners that we partner with, our board of directors. Um, they're just, a, everybody wants to try and help manufacturers out um, so bad that, I mean, it's just, they're passionate about it, their heart is in it, um, and they'll do anything to help them out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're fortunate to have a great uh, center here. And again, we're, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. I mean, we are not trying to make shareholders anything, you know, profits. I mean, that's just, we're a nonprofit. So when we're helping manufacturers, we are all in it just for the impact we can make on, on them. That's our, that's our goal. My last question, you loved it as a kid, and it was awfully important that pig and sheep and chicken farming. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're liking what you're doing now more than that? Definitely I do. I love manufacturing. You know, I mean, I've been doing it for... 30 years, 27 years now, uh, manufacturing, and I fell in love with uh, some stuff being built from kind of just all this different materials. And yeah, I do love it a lot. I mean, there's a lot to be said about, uh, I would still wouldn't mind having a little farm with some chickens or whatever, but um, that's a lot of work too. And then when you want to go to Florida or something, you got to find someone to watch them, right, Mike? Yeah, and you do it. <laughs> By the way, I keep thinking about your dad and how he so cleverly had this built-in slave labor thing going where he gave you the I know, for free. Huh? <laughs> I know, huh? What a deal. It it worked out the same way with the sheep later. I'll just tell you, that's another story. But yeah. <laughs> hey, Jody, thanks so much for joining me. It was a treat. It was nice, to, you know, that's the nice thing about technology. We can sit here and we're seeing each other either, even though we just push out the audio. I really enjoyed this thoroughly and I look forward to the opportunity where we can actually meet face to face. I do too, buddy. Hey, I take good care. You too, buddy.
Thank you.